0: Hi, this is Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. This week, we'll be talking about the times in your life that spiral out of control, that spin you around so much, you never know where or what or how you or anyone else will end up. We'll get back to all that in a little bit. But right now, here's Wolf from 1968 with A Magic Carpet Ride.
1: I'll take you away.
0: Fish out of Agua, you don't know what you will find. Yep, the story of a large part of my childhood, because there were times that I thought would be peaceful that turned into chaos, and times that I thought would be terrible that turned out, mm, okay. In 1967, my family was living on the top floor of a five-story walk-up in the Northeast Bronx, where we had been the first Latino, never mind Puerto Rican family, to ever live in the building. And, like most pioneers, we found the natives weren't particularly welcoming. And we all had different ways of coping. My father's was to go out of his way to to befriend almost anyone he could. He would always know just what to say to people. Oh, especially when it was complaining about the New York Mets, who, in their early years, were just about the worst baseball team New York City had ever seen. Ever. Ever. My mother was the opposite. She had come back from from her hospitalizations somehow different, and the ever-changing roster of medications she was prescribed in an effort to bring her back to what she had been before she became ill never seemed to work. So, eventually, she stopped taking them and dealt with the never-ending turmoil inside her in her own way. But occasionally, there'd be a break in the wall where a ray of light would break in, And she'd be the person my father remembered. I know this because many years later, he'd tell me so. Only what I remember as a child was sometimes when her light did get in, she would sing along with the radio like no one was looking until someone did. And then just like that, the light would go out. This is a song I remember my mother singing to herself when I was a child when she thought no one
1: was watching.
0: And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And that was uh, Paul McCartney Live singing "Full on the Hill from the Beatles Magical Mystery Tour album. And can you believe when I was Googling songs to play on the show? Like I was Googling Magical Mystery Tour like friggin' crazy. And all I got were cover songs. Like um, 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 like who sang uh, uh forget it, like anybody you could think of, like sang this song, and this is what I could find. But anyway, Magical Mystery Tour came out in the summer of 1967. And that's when our next story in Fish Out of Agua happens. In 1967, the average income per year was $7,300. The average cost of a new house, $14,250. Average rent per month was $125. And that brand new car had gone up just $100 from the year before to $2,750. In the Middle East in 1967, Israel went to war with Syria, Egypt, and Jordan in what became known as the Six-Day War. And in England, a model named Twiggy became a fashion sensation. Popular movies that year were To Sir With Love, Barefoot in the Park, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? The Monterey Pop Festival in California included performances from The Who, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, and Jimi Hendrix. The boxer Muhammad Ali was stripped of his Boxing World Championship for refusing to be inducted into the U.S. Army. And then U.S. Navy pilot John McCain was shot down over North Vietnam and spent five and a half years in a POW camp. And he came back to tell his tale. Which a certain, uh, how do I say this, individual elect, didn't think made him worthy of admiration at all, which only makes me wonder what's going to happen when people in this country refuse to support what they perceive as a new and unjust war. Exactly. Born this year in 1967 was Kurt Cobain, killed in a plane crash at the age of 26, Otis Redding. Also in 1967, the United States Supreme Court declared international, international, interracial marriage constitutional, lawful, in the landmark case Loving versus Virginia, while in New York City, teenagers and young adults converged in Central Park's Bethesda Fountain for the Summer of Love, and this story happened, Chapter 9 of Fish Out of Agua, and this story is called Kitten World. The girl was pulling my ponytail. She pulled it again, and she called me Whitey. This girl did this to me a lot. Every day, in fact, in that kindergarten, in that escuela I was going to, PS 28M on Amsterdam Avenue, because I was living at 555 West 157th Street in apartment 6B with my abuelita and Papa Julio. I hated school. I wanted to stay home and draw and play with my brother Kevin even though sometimes Papa Julio catches me and then he gets mad, always mad and sometimes he yells at me and sometimes he hits me and sometimes he does something else which I'm not supposed to tell anyone about. Okay, so maybe someone does have to hurt me but not her, not this girl. So I whirl my head around, and the three metal barrettes in my long, bushy ponytail whack that girl in the mouth. I hear the crack of metal against Tooth. I smell blood. I was brought into a room, an office, where there was an old lady like Abuelita, but with a mean face, a principal. She asked me where my mother was. I told her my mother was in Kitten World. She had gone to play with the kittens. "'Don't you see the yarn?' I said. "'She's playing. "'We're all playing with the kittens. "'We smell good. "'We play nice. "'We have fun. "'No one ever gets hurt in Kitten World. "'And I want to go back there,' I tell her. "'I want to go back to Kitten World. "'I want to go home. "'I want to go home!' "'I woke up. "'It was dark, and I could hear my mother "'pacing the apartment, talking under her breath.' I was home, in the apartment my father had once lost the keys for, apartment 5C on St. Peter's Avenue. Four rooms, two bedrooms, one medium size with a false wall my father built to divide it in half, which is what my brother Kevin and I share. He has the side by the window. I have the side by the door. And then there's another, much smaller bedroom, where my father and mother sleep. There's also a bathroom, a large living room with two big windows, and a small boxy foyer opposite a long, narrow kitchen. And that's where my mother stops pacing. I don't know what she's going to say tonight. Sometimes it's from the Bible. Sometimes it's in Spanish. Sometimes it's something about a test, a parasite, and a plot. Sometimes it's just screaming outside of a window, I hate you! I hate you! I hate you! Over and over and over and over until someone yells at her to shut the hell up and she just speeches even louder. Speeching. That's what she calls it. Later that day, Diti Dulce and cousin Ray Ray, who was just beginning to walk, came over. After three t- tries, my Aunt Dulce had finally been able to produce a live baby, a sturdy little boy with almond-colored skin, straight brown hair, and hazel eyes. Her birthday present, she calls him, because he was born just two days after her 23rd birthday. I'm glad she has Ray Ray to keep her from being lonely, because Uncle Raymond has gone away again. After we finished eating, my mother and Dulce went to go sit in the kitchen, and had some more coffee. Kevin, Ray Ray, and I were sitting on the floor in the living room watching Batman. Kevin had a Batmobile with action figures, and he and Ray Ray were playing with them. Ray Ray would put one of the toys in his mouth, and Kevin would take it out. They both shrieked with laughter. And between them and the trains rumbling past, I could hardly hear my favorite villain, Catwoman. Then all of a sudden I heard Dulce say loudly, Como? Lucy? Como? I can't hear you. What? Ay, porque do you have to whisper to speak Spanish in your own house? So your I pretend I'm Italian husband doesn't hear you? My mother said something back I couldn't hear, and then Lucy tore into the living room, scooped up Ray Ray, and left, slamming the door behind her. My mother and Dulce almost never fought not like she and Ophelia would. And I wondered what started it. But my mother stayed in the kitchen, and I knew better to ask. I knew better than to ask. My family was the first and only Puerto Rican family to ever live in our building. We're Mayflower Puerto Ricans, my father said. We're pioneers. But the Sibelis, Kirchbergers and O'Grady's weren't exactly welcoming until they got to know my dad, because he was St. Peter's Avenue's Jackie Robinson, the icebreaker, the credit to his race, the example that made it easier for those to come. Plus, he told everyone that we came from the Italian part of Puerto Rico. And now, all the men on the block greeted my father whenever we'd walk into to the corner candy store or the ice cream parlor. Hey, Rudy, how about the Mets, they'd say. The Mets, they suck, my father would say. And then he'd stop and talk about the new rookie sensation, the pitcher, Tom Seaver, the phenom who would one day make the Mets not suck. And then Kevin and I would get a free chunky bar or extra ice cream in our black and white ice cream sodas. My father could go anywhere and make anyone like him. It was a gift. But my mother wasn't like that. My mother stayed in the apartment, except for taking me to school or going food shopping and then she'd spend hours getting ready putting on a full face of makeup a dress and her high-heeled shoes she almost always looked like one of the pictures in her movie magazines even at home when she was wearing slacks and a sweater and her pink slippers with the little heels chancletas only she never called them that my mother always looked perfect but not like someone you could talk to or touch She always stared straight ahead when we walked, almost never answering if someone spoke to her. And if Kevin or I ever stopped, she would just pull us along and keep going. But sometimes we would have fun. I remember one day at the A&P, we were wheeling Kevin in a shopping cart and the Beatles' Fool on the Hill started playing. My mother really liked that song. And I remember her smiling and softly singing along, wheeling the cart along with the music, until another shopper, a woman from the block, passed by us and looked, and my mother suddenly stopped. She stopped singing and put her blank face back on. And I wish that person had never came down that aisle so my mother could have kept singing. Besides her movie magazines, my mother also liked to read books by people with names like Carl Young or Jose Ortega y Gasset. And she'd get excited when she found something she liked, and she'd write stuff down on little index cards. I wanted to see what made her happy, so I tried to read those books too, but I could understand them and put them back down as soon as I opened them. But most of the time, when she wasn't doing housework or physically taking care of Kevin or me, She would pace the apartment until she found a comfortable spot to stop and speech. I hate you. I hate you! I hate you! When my father came home from work that day, it was getting dark. He worked double shifts most days, sleeping for a few hours and then going back out to work again. But this day, he was home early. Kevin and I were still watching TV or trying to, and my mother was yelling out the kitchen window while she reheated the pots of instant mashed potatoes, hot dogs, and frozen corn. Our dinner. My father peeked into the kitchen and then came back into the living room and motioned me to follow him. He led me up the stairs to the roof and pushed open the unlatched creaking door. There were TV antennas whooshing and clotheslines flapping, and it was a little scary at night. "'I heard little pops of noise "'and then bigger hissing and booming ones. "'We walked over to the edge of the roof "'where there was a small wall "'and a rail about even with the top of my head. "'My father picked me up "'and balanced me against him "'with my feet on the edge of that wall. "'He turned us "'and pointed into the growing darkness and said, "'Look.' "'I followed his finger "'and saw little points of light "'streak through the night sky.' Some of them trailed away. Others burst into flashes of colors and trickled down towards the ground. They were all very noisy, and I could smell smoke and something burny, but I wasn't scared. I was with my father. You know what today is, little girl? It's July 4th, and those out there are fireworks. And they're for you. They know your birthday's coming. Six more days? You'll be seven. And then my father pointed out bottle rockets, four-ounce rockets, Roman candles, pinwheels, and fountains for a few more minutes before we walked back down to the apartment. He sent me back into the living room, went into the kitchen again, and came right back out. And he let out that same breath he always did when he didn't know what to do. The long whistle with no music in it. when he looked at us there was a smile on his face who wants ice cream he asked and then he took kevin and me down to the ice cream parlor i had a cherry lime ricky my new favorite my dad and kevin had black and white ice cream sodas and we went. win but when we got back to the apartment my mother was still speeching my father put us to bed that night something he rarely ever did and that was all he did he watched us brush our teeth put on our jammies, and climb into bed. No jokes, no reading, just close the door, good night. And I remember he had a strange, half-sad, half-mad look on his face as he told us good night. I could hear my mother pacing in the living room. She stopped by the window on the other side of the wall from my bed, and I closed my eyes, and I waited for the kittens to come. The kittens wouldn't come always, but when they did... They would take me to a place where no one was ever yelled at, no one was hit, and no one ever cried. It was a place where your mother didn't take a lot of medicine that made her either too tired to play or talk, or the exact opposite, running from room to room throughout the apartment, yelling out the window, threatening to get out the parasites, the scum of the earth, the filth. And as my mother's voice rose, the kittens came. Sometimes they spoke to me. But tonight, they just snuggled next to me on my pillow. As I lay between them, breathing in their soft fur, listening to their purring, it drowned out her words. And I fell asleep. The next morning, Kevin had thrown the entire Batman collection out of that same window where my mother was speeching, and she sent me down to the alley to pick them up. When I got there, I looked up and... She was standing at the window watching me. And as I climbed back up the five flights of stairs to the apartment, I remember thinking that even though now we were all together like a real family, something was still wrong. I mean, even on the honeymooners, it was Ralph who did all the yelling. Not Alice. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now it's time to showcase our featured guest artist for the week, Naima Hassan, from the comedy duo The Black and the Jew, and oh, so many, many, many other things. But I'll just let yous find that out for Hi. yourself. Hi, this is Michelle Carlo, Fish Out of Agua, Radio Free Brooklyn, and um, I'm sitting here right now with a quite accomplished and beautiful lady of my long, long acquaintance. We both wore purple today unknowingly. We did did not plan this out because I always say great minds think alike. I know this woman from way back, of course, in the art star days at Surf Reality and Collective Unconscious. I performed alongside her at spaces too numerous and sometimes too torturous to mention. (laughs) She and her lovely husband who shares a characteristic with me that we're both redheads. Please welcome to the radio show um, Naima, Hassan, artist, educator, activist, and he many did, other things. Being
2: Yes, yes. Thank you, Michelle. I'm honored to be on your
0: show. Oh, please. Thank you me. were like one of the first people that I thought of. And you. you had asked me why I wanted to speak with you. And I said, well, first it was like, why wouldn't I want to speak with you? Uh, because of just like all the great work that you and um, Epstein have done over the, I'm going to guess, 20 long years of our acquaintance. Yeah.
2: Yep, we've been married for 30, performing for over 20.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, we go back to the 20th century together. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. the other reason I wanted to speak with you is that you're also an educator. And yes. as an educator, you are charged with inspiring and creating the next generation of hopefully some artists and writers who will take this conversation forward when you and I have left uh, the building. I, I, I am
2: so about inspiring And it comes from everybody needs to have a voice. Everybody has one, but it's really about finding it. And Miles Davis made a statement, a comment many, many years ago. It takes sometimes a lifetime to find your true voice. Mm. And in finding that true voice, what you want to have is wisdom, common sense, and no fear. Mm. So for me, in my work, um, I really have been working on the past years being in a place where I have no fear around my work, I'm even not even concerned about my reputation, meaning that if it's coming from a good place, if it's coming from my heart, if it's coming from a place of wanting to inspire, because the the thing is, being an artist, it's not just about what you think, it's what you're putting out there. That is what's very important to me. I have always done work that was not, quote-unquote, mainstream, whatever that means. This is true. And I made a conscious choice to do that, and I remember I was auditioning for um, Ain't Misbehaving and I was sitting there and a bunch of the uh, actresses where everybody was vocalizing, walking around, talking about how much work they was doing. And my thought was that if we were all that damn busy, we wouldn't be here. And I remember thinking, I want to create my own work. Hmm. I, I have a voice and I want to do something. And. The next role that I got was in Intezaki Shange's piece. And that kind of really inspired me. The character I played, it wasn't um, for Colored Girls. It was um, one of her other plays. And I played this character who had had a child but uh, lost a child. And I remembered after the show, people were uncomfortable coming to me because the character was so real. And I realized that I want to give voice to people who... Uh, we don't always want to hear from. Mm. It's My life has never been about just being comfortable. It's about being free. And um, I've never really worried about what people thought about whenever I was doing my work because I've always experienced a lot of yeses and a lot of no'es. People either like or they don't like. Right. So it's really about then what does it mean to me? Now, in terms of inspiring students, I have worked in this environment being a, um, a theater teacher for over 10 years. Really? Wow. Uh, just in this school alone. And my job is to inspire, motivate, and pull out that seed that's in there. And my experience has been today, a lot of young people are actually scared Yes. of yes. being um, um have an imagination. Yes. Um, oh, my they're God. They're scared of of creating outside the box now more than ever. Yes. I actually said to one of my classes, I said, I'm more of a radical than you are.
0: I believe it. Oh, my God. I did a presentation at Brooklyn College today with, with Fish Out of Agua, and these are college students. They were 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, and they were looking at me. Okay, this is radio, so picture me on the radio with my mouth open and my eyes like pinwheels. i would like, eh. Yes. And, re- yes. Re- and and they were like, "Well, how, how do you do that?" I'm like, "You don't have to know how to do it. If you want to do something, you just do it." I said, "Does anybody here ever hear of punk rock?" And believe it or not, a good number of those young people had heard of punk rock. I said, "Well, they just decided that they were going to be musicians and they didn't give a shit if they knew how to play the guitar or Absolutely. not. They were just going to friggin' do it. So just DIY, Absolutely. man. Just
2: do it." But it's not. It's it's. We have created a society that the formula is already written for you. Yes. So there's um we we we're tricked because people look like they're punk. They look mm-hmm. like they're radical. You know, everybody has a tattoo. Mm-hmm. Years ago on the Lower East I Side, don't. if you had a tattoo, i n I'm not pleased I don't have one either. I don't
0: have I have piercings but I don't have a tattoo.
2: Yeah. But it's so for me, it's really about uh being fearless—it's really about um, yeah. putting it out there, and it's a thin line because not only do I just want to put my work out there, I really want to inspire people. Um, you know, with the election going on, everybody—when was the world ever peaceful?
0: Never. When, so it's kind—I mean, not like, in my lifetime. Well, it's kind
2: of like um, we're all shook by it, and you know, yes, there is a lot going on. There's a lot of voices happening. And for me, one of my saving grace that has really helped me handle this is that I'm a meditator. Mm. I've been meditating for 15 years because what you have to realize is the external things that are happening out here, they have always happened because we want to dominate people. Yes. We want to rule people. Yes. We're uncomfortable if people aren't doing it our way. Yes. And as I say a lot of times to my students, just because you have an opinion, it's not that deep. Everyone has one.
0: Yes, everyone. Preach. has one. Well, you everyone can say your opinions are like assholes, yes. but you don't want to yes. say that no, to middle schoolers. No, no. no wait, wait, wait till, they, <laughs> yes. wait till they're yes. in ninth grade they to tell it. them they're they an get asshole. It. They get it. They oh get my it. god, they get it. You know, I think that the last time—I mean, you and I are basically peers in age. There may be a sprinkle of years between us, but I think oh, we, have, so sweet. we have some <laughs> of the, we have some of the same memories in common, <laughs> I, I believe, and I think that the last time that people would just polarize like this and freak the fuck out like this was in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. I remember my mother telling me that they thought that 1968 was the worst year ever mm-hmm. because uh, they killed Kennedy, another kid, the second Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy. They killed uh, Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and there were riots everywhere and people really thought that people were going to be lying in the streets Spread eagle with their throat slit from ear to ear. People would just so freaked out. And what came out of that? The young lords came out of that. A lot of protest came out of that. A lot of bad came out of that. We
2: don't realize our potential. And it's every individual has to really look at uh, you can change the world, but you have to be really honest because right now it's like we're almost letting everybody do it for, for us. us. You think
0: it's because uh, of social
2: media? I think social media is uh, not they- the full reason, but it's an excuse to kind of uh, let it, uh, an opinion come to you. Uh, we don't. There's no space to investigate. Something comes up, and, and then boom, you, you react investigate or you yeah. right. But I, I want to tell you a situation um, when you talk about strength and talk about being um, a woman and being powerful. Um, you know, we technically say uh, we want that, but. Um, I had uh, a couple of students say to me, Miss Hassan, I really, I really admire you, but sometimes um, you, you're, 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 you're a little too tough. So I, I, no, 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 I investigated this. I said, so tell me women you admire. Oh, Rihanna, uh, Beyonce, Taylor Swift. And I said, and what do you like about them? And they said, Well, they're strong women. I said, And you think if you worked for these women, they would make you accountable? And they said, Yeah. I said, What's the difference hmm. between them and me? Uh, now, I'm going to ask you, no. Color. I'm a dark complexion woman. Oh, and Beyonce, Rihanna and Beyonce and, are more. And they, they present more mixed. And it's funny because they didn't want to come out and say it. But if you look at how people are perceived, we a lot of times judge people on what they physically look like. I've been on the phone with people, and they were shocked because they thought I was white
0: huh. because of how I speak. Well, you speak like an educator. I speak like a Brooklyn bum. No?
2: <laughs> Get out of here. But, you know, the, th- the thing was in terms of what a powerful woman look like and I said you think you want to be one you think you want to be around one you are around one right now and it's not comfortable
0: to you it's not comfortable because there's no precedent for it there's no there's there's they have no experience with it and because it's the unknown therefore it must be shunned you don't you don't
2: they they're not looking at in their own community the image that they need is right there Mm -hmm. yeah so you don't, I said to them, you don't know Rihanna, you don't know Beyonce, you don't know Taylor Swift, you have an experience of me five days a week. Right, and so you know me. So you know me. I've been there for you, I know your life. And it made them look at um, how they don't look at their community For their resources. And it's very, very important. I think that when we talk about empowering, I think that when we talk about we want to change, we have to really be honest and look at um, racism is an illness. It's a mindset that was taught. And just like someone is racist, they need to heal. So do people who believe that they are worthless. So do people who believe that because of what their ethnic background is, that they are worth. So my point is everyone needs to heal right now yes and if you look at the world it's a representation of how we think and we're all scared we're all walking around saying please love me but you know I don't want you to pick it up so I'm going to look like I'm tough people are not sleeping at night relationships are falling apart because we're looking for our happiness we're looking for everything external mm-hmm. and what you need to build up is your inner core that is your true. wisdom your strength um, Your
0: compassion, yes, yes, let's, let's, and let's bring this back to our art and how we can use that as a weapon to combat this
2: crisis. I think I think that um, art is a vehicle for you to put out there an opportunity for people to look at something, generate a thought. I don't, I don't put my work out there and say. You're going to like it or not like it. You know, all artists we're, we're a contradiction because you want a full house. You want to make a living doing it. Um, most artists, you know, people view us as being flighty. We work three and four jobs right. just we're trying the, to hold the it together. We're the least flighty
0: people ever. We uh, are the most practical people. Yes, so, like, Yes. Rah! Yes.
2: Uh, we we uh, were on f- uh, zero uh, in terms of energy just generating and putting it out there. And today... Oh, me. It's actually even harder to get support as an artist if you're outside the box. You yes. try to do a comedy club, you've got to bring 15 people. Yep. They have to spend $15. So, my point is one of the reasons that I started doing my own work was yes, because I wanted to, I want to be yes. in control of it. Yes. Um, I wanted to not have someone tell me, well, this is to this and this is to that. So I said, you know what? I called it the Frank Zappa. I'm going to write it. I'm going to produce it. I'm going to put it out there. And guess what? There's a market for us, and we found it, and we tapped into it. And I say to anyone that wants to be an artist, anyone who believes they have a gift to give, something to share, trust it, you have to trust it, you have to know that you're going to get no's, you have to trust it, you have to know that you're going to get no's, and then you have to let it go and do it. You
0: have to, yeah, you just, you, have to, you just have to put it out there and not have any expectations for it. You can't say that, well, if this doesn't happen, that I'm not going to do this, or if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to do that. You well, just have to a, keep going forward. You have absolutely. to keep going forward, because I... To have that similarity with you is that I went to writing and producing my own work because I wasn't getting casted. I remember going to this big seminar at the Public Theater for Latinos in Acting, and I stood up and I remember saying... To the Because the they were taking questions. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, when I go on an audition for a white character, they, they say to me, well, you don't really look white. What are you? And I say, I'm Puerto Rican. They say, well, you don't really have that look we want. Oh. And then when I go for a Latin part, they say to me, I look white. And I say, what am I supposed to do? And one of the panelists, who is actually a pretty famous person, I'm not going to mention their name because I don't, I don't want to give them the satisfaction. But they said to me, well, you should just pass. Pass. Yeah. Yes. yes, that should just pass. Now, if you're not a person, oh, even not a person of color, maybe that word doesn't have a, a, a bad connotation you know to you. But it's but the, you know the, I'm supposed to deny. But you know who what? what? Was. That
2: that is a choice that you can make, and the the, the decision is up to you. How do you want to do this? I'm very clear. Um, if I wanted to go another route, it would be easier in terms of what it looks like externally. What I know is that I've created a body of work that no one else has ever done before. Yes, absolutely. And our work doesn't have a color, a a gender. It's a mindset. Our audiences are diverse. You can be from 18 to 60. All you have to do is love to laugh. You (laughs) better be 18. All you got to do is like to laugh, come, think, and have compassion. And that's it.
0: Compassion. And that's it. But that's what that person told me. And I was like, well forget this because i'm not going to deny my family and my heritage and who i am to satisfy one person and that's when i started creating my fungal character which led to other shows which led to storytelling which led to me exploring the being the fish out of water the fish out of agua and so like my whole work since then has been like these types of stories that so people know who we who we were and why we mattered
2: and see the thing is I remember I uh, just read something by uh, Maya Angelou that when she was talking about she was raped, she stopped talking, and she said that she read everything so that when she did start talking, she had a whole lot to say. Oh, that's amazing. I mean,
0: it's horrible that that happened, but... But out of that, what what she was
2: talking about was out of that situation came such greatness. And out of right now, Mm. this is a great time for artists. Yeah. Right now, if you have a voice, put it out there. It is. I am so inspired by what's going on now because what I do... The voice needs to be heard. Yes. Um, And I love that. I have no fear about it. You can't worry about if you're stepping on a toe, step on the whole goddamn foot. I'm fine with that. Um, It's important right now that you not worry about whether or not you are correct. Yes. uh, Politically correct. It's, It's not about that right now. It's really about... Offering a platform because guess what? People want it. They need it. They need it. They need it.
0: They're desperate for it. Yes. There's, I really see when I go on the social and I just see just like these spoutings of people. They are de- desperate and desolate. There's a yes. desolation in people's yes. souls yes. right now, yes. and it comes from a depth of all this alliteration that I don't think people have experienced mm-hmm. in their lives at all. I think maybe the only people who know this type of desolation have been the people that have lived through an actual war, yes. which would have been people my yes. parents' age yes. who were children during yes. World War yes. II and yes. had to endure actual privation. And for we, don't, we have no fucking clue what war is like in this country and we just like front 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 but you know what we're at i think we're at war now i mean i don't care if that's seditious or not we're at Mm of war now mm -hmm, it may not mm be a guns and grenades a molotov cocktail war but there is a war going on
2: well it's a different it's 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 a lot of different things going on and i think uh because our society is so apt meaning the app and computers, we're trying to get the right. Everybody wants to get the answer. You can't get the answer right now. Everybody wants to get the solution. Uh, We're in the middle of it. Um, Donald Trump uh, just didn't get here. Hillary Clinton just didn't get here. These mindsets have existed. Uh, We have to look at the kind of world we want to live in Um, The nobody's dealing with global warming. Nobody's dealing with the planet is falling apart. Um, You know, being an artist is a great thing. But what's even greater to me is being a human being that has compassion. uh, Someone who um, my work is a vehicle. Uh, it, it, It represents what's truly in my heart. I'm not interested in sitting there arguing with you about your political platform. You have that. Uh, You really, when you're on these social media sites, you're not changing how people feel. No. Um, You're just either they agree with you or they don't agree with you. My point is is your life working? Right. Is this point of view. Uh, keeping you up at night yeah. is this point of view opening up your heart. And that's for me what my work is.
0: And that was Naima Hassan, and we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. The next story from Fish Out of Agua happens in the spring of 1968, the year that some people called the world's worst year ever. Yes, your average income went up to $7,850 the cost of a movie ticket was just fifty, and your monthly rent was only $130, less probably than your cable bill. But in Vietnam, there was the New Year's or Tet Offensive, and later, the tragic massacre of civilians by U.S. soldiers that became known as My Lai. The Soviet Union cracked down on a nascent uprising in the city of Prague in, in what was then known as Czechoslovakia, and there were student protests in Mexico City, Paris, Warsaw, and London. In the United States, there was rioting in Los Angeles, Louisville, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C., as both presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy and civil rights activist Dr. Martin Luther King were assassinated. Later that year, the first Black Power salute would be seen on television during an Olympic medals ceremony in Mexico City. Born this year... Rachel Ray, Tracy Morgan, Mark Anthony, and Margaret Cho. Popular films were Bonnie and Clyde, The Valley of the Dolls, The Planet of the Apes, and Rosemary's Baby. On television, 60 Minutes made its debut, and in music, The Beatles released the White Album, and other hit songs included Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson, The Doors' Hello, I Love You, and I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin Gaye. Astronauts Frank Borman, James Lovell Jr. and William Anders of Apollo 8 became the first human beings to ever reach the moon. And me? Well, I made a friend. And now, Chapter 10 of Fish Out of Agua, Blood Sisters. One day, I walked up to a group of kids in the playground next to my new school and said, ''Hi, my name's Michelle. What's yours?'' My father had picked me up from school after a half day because my mother was at the doctor with Kevin, who was having another ear infection. And instead of taking me home right away, he let me play in the playground next to the school, something my mother almost never let me do. I was excited. Some kids were playing with a small pink rubber ball called a Spalding, and they were taking turns bouncing it against the brick wall of the Parky House, the building where the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation employee who was known as the Parky, kept all the playground stuff. The kids looked nice. I thought maybe I could make friends with them. I had been going to school there for for what seemed like a long time, and I really didn't have any friends yet. So I walked over to a group of kids. Do you like Underdog? I asked. I like Underdog. Do you want to play Underdog? Underdog was the quintessential Saturday morning cartoon back then, a takeoff of Superman about a mild-mannered dog with superpowers. But as I started talking, I heard a voice behind me. Freckle-faced strawberry! Freckle-faced strawberry! It was the fat boy with the hooded eyes. He yelled this at me every time he saw me, which was a lot, at school and in the other playground, which was down the block from the building where we both lived. I got quiet. Every time he yelled this at me, it made whomever I was trying to talk to run away. How was I supposed to make friends if the fat boy always spoiled it for me? (laughs) The fat boy creaked, and then he and the other kids ran to the other side of the playground, and I slowly started to walk back to where my father was. I'll play with you. It was a girl just my size, with pretty brown hair and three pigtails sticking up out of her head. My name's Norlinda, and this is my sister Gigi she said, pointing at an older, much bigger girl standing next to her who rolled her eyes at us. I ain't playing no baby games. Y'all go ahead. Dolinda and I climbed up the side of the monkey bars together, and when we got almost to the top, I turned around and said, not bird or dog or even frog. It's just little old me, underdog. Don't worry, sweet Polly. I'll save you. And then I jumped off. I really was surprised when I hit the ground. I think I was so happy to finally have someone to play with, I think I thought I could fly. There was no padding under anything in playgrounds back then, just broken asphalt, broken glass, and occasionally a broken hypodermic needle. My poor father, who had just looked down to light a cigarette, looked up to see me screaming and bloody with a piece of glass sticking out through the flesh under my lower lip. He ran to me, wrapped his handkerchief around my chin, picked me up gently, and carried me home to where my mother would pull out the glass, clean the cut, and yell at him for not watching me. I still have that scar, and I still remember being carried over my father's shoulder, seeing Darlinda waving after me. From that day on, Dorlinda and I were friends. We were both in the same class at school, and we were both in the silver reading group. This meant that even though we were in second grade, we were reading at a fourth grade level. We traded books. The Shy Stegosaurus of Cricket Creek, Henry and Beezus, and Harriet the Spy. We shared bologna sandwiches and hostess snowballs at lunch. And I showed her my kitten drawings. And she drew, too. A boy with a spotted pet dinosaur she called a kibi. And one day, Dorlinda said, let's be blood sisters. What's that? We get a razor blade and you cut your thumb and I cut my thumb. And then we mix our blood together and we swear and we'll be best friends forever. Um, okay, but uh, you have to get the razor blade, though. Well, how come I have to get it? Well, Michelle, you have a father. Just get the blade from inside the razor he shaves with. Dorlinda's father was dead. He had died not long after we met. I told her that I didn't see mine once for almost a year, but she said it wasn't the same. I thought I was lucky I still had a father, and... I almost backed out, but I got the blade that night anyway. I'd gotten good at sneaking things. Like at Abuelita's, the time when I was living there and I put soap in the pan when Titi O'Fale was cooking, and then everyone thought she made a bad dinner, and no one ever found out. To get this razor blade, I had to balance on the rim of the bathtub. I snuck the razor out of the medicine cabinet, and I almost fell, too, but I ended up getting it, and then I stuck it in the new book I'd finished, Beezus and Ramona and if I wrote a good book report for it I could be in the gold reading group and I'd be the first one in my class the next day the second they let us out in the schoolyard for lunchtime, Dolinda and I raced across the concrete to the furthest corner and hid behind a tree I took out the razor from inside the book and I poked the end against the underside of my left thumb until a small red spot seeped out and trickled down my hand it didn't hurt that much but looking at the blood made my stomach feel a little sick, and I started to get afraid we were going to get caught. But then Dolinda said, hurry up! And she grabbed at the blade, conveniently cutting herself as she did so. We looked at each other, bleeding for a second, and then we grabbed each other's hands and mashed our thumbs together while we jumped up and down. Blood sisters, blood sisters, we are the blood sisters forever and ever and ever and ever till we get married and die! Then a teacher heard us yelling and came over, but... Darlinda had thrown the blade away, so we didn't get caught with it, although we both got sent to the nurse, who asked us what happened, and we answered, Nothing. The nurse gave us a look of disbelief, daubed our wound with mercurochrome, put double Band-Aids on them, and sent us back to class. (laughs) That was the only thing they really worried about in those days, that the cut got cleaned. Because if a child slit her thumb and mixed blood with anybody today... (laughs) They'd probably both be kept under quarantine until they turned 18, or at least the next six weeks. But this was the early spring of 1968, and the peak of the cultural and societal upheaval we now call the 60s was really just beginning. While Delinda and I were waiting for our book reports to be returned, I kept looking at my thumb, and it hurt more now, but it was a good hurt. As if it had been for something. I had never had a blood sister before, and I wasn't sure what that meant. I mean, Dolinda and I already played together all the time. Maybe, I thought. Maybe it meant that the fat boy wouldn't bother me anymore. And while I was thinking about all of this, I got my book report back, and on top was a gold star. I was in gold reading group. It was the best day of my life. I couldn't remember ever being so happy. But after school, Darlinda had to go right on the school bus, and my mother and Kevin weren't waiting for me out front like they usually were, so I had to stay behind the fence where you were supposed to wait if your parent was late. I went down the steps to the gate to look for my mother, but I heard someone breathe me, and I turned right around. It was the fat boy. He was older than me in third grade, but his class barely got up to the green reading group. And I knew this because all the names of the kids who had gotten their colored stars were put up on the walls outside each classroom. The fat boy kicked Beezes and Ramona out of my hands and my thumb started to throb. Goldie star, smarty pants, freckle face strawberry. A few kids and teachers were at the top of the stairs, but none of them were looking at us. I tried to go around the fat boy to go back up the stairs, but he blocked me. I bent down to pick Beezes up, and he pulled my ponytail hard and said, go back to Ireland, ketchup head. Ireland, I said. I'm not Irish. Yeah? Well, what are you? Uh, um, well, well, my family's from Puerto Rico, but I was born in Manhattan. We live on St. Peter's Avenue, and you know that. You live in the building next door. Puerto Rican? Huh. No wonder you play with niggers. Spick. Well, I didn't know what to say to that. I didn't know what a nigger was. I I knew the words negro and negrito, but they weren't bad. Titi Dulce and Titi Ophelia called Titi Carmen negrito all the time. Did he mean Dolinda? She was brown like Titi Carmen, but the fat boy wasn't smiling, so I knew that he meant that to be a bad name. I could tell. I could tell by the way he looked and sounded when he said it. I did know what a spick was, though. That was another bad word that people used to call what my family was. Some people in our building used to call us Spicks until my father made friends with them. And I thought, well, maybe I could make friends with this fat boy. Uh, And he wouldn't say bad names anymore. "Um, My my name's Michelle. Hi. Do you watch Batman? I like Batman. I like that. Your name is Spick. Nah. You're too small to be a Spick. You're a Speck. "'He spit on the floor between us "'as if to point out just how small I was. "'Pasquale! "'Get over here right now! "'Where's Antony? "'A tall woman like Didi Ophelia, "'with the same tan skin and wavy black hair, "'but with a totally different way of speaking, "'was yelling from halfway down the block. "'Pasquale wailed, "'Oh, Ma! "'Don't you all ma me! "'Get your brother and get over here! "'Now!' Right behind the tall woman was my mother. She was wearing a pink tweed spring coat and a short pink dress with dark red suede high heels. There was a flowered scarf tied around her head. She hadn't wrapped her hair that morning. Kevin was clutching one of her hands, and I could see the other was balled up into a fist. The tall woman, who was wearing jeans and a plain shirt and sweater, stopped to look at my mother. She smiled at my mother, and I thought she was going to say something, My mother brushed right past her and went straight inside the gate to me. As she passed the tall woman, I noticed she barely came up to her shoulders. My mother took my hand, and we started walking home, going again past the tall woman, the fat boy, and his brother. I could feel eyes on my back as we walked away. They or somebody was watching us. I I turned around and then turned back, and I wished my mother had smiled back at the lady. Why was it so hard for people to be friends? I wondered if grown-ups ever did blood sisters. What happened to your thumb? My mother asked. She walked fast, her heels going clickety-click-click as Kevin and I struggled to keep up. Nothing, I said. It had been the happiest day ever, and now it was ruined. My book was gone, my thumb hurt, I'd gotten called bad names, and... I was confused. I I, I looked like the kids at school, but that wasn't good enough. I was smart, but that wasn't good enough. I, I even had a blood sister, but that still wasn't good enough. She was called names too. No matter what, it was never good enough. I wanted to tell someone all this, but who? Not my mother. How could she listen when all she did was talk? I cried that night. Please, 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 I thought. Let me wake up with a regular family where no one talks out the window and everyone looks the same and I could have regular straight brown hair and no freckles and, and a normal family. But the next morning when I woke up, my mother was speeching. My hair was still red and curly. My face was still freckled. When I got to school... Darlinda was playing with a group of girls from her school bus who were all brown like she was. And I wondered what would have happened if they had heard the fat boy Pasquale saying those bad names. And I started to run over to Dorlinda, but stopped. Uh, wh- what if those other girls didn't want me there? What if they started calling me names too? But when Dorlinda saw me, she ran right over. She stuck out her bandaged thumb and I bumped it with mine and we played giant steps until the bell rang and we went into school, arm in arm. No matter what happened, we were still best friends. Blood sisters. In June, Dolinda and I were skipped. That meant we weren't going to third grade, but straight into the fourth. And when we did, Pascual Bellina, the fat boy, would be there. And that's our show. We kind of went a little over time this week. Oh, my God. Well, if you liked what you heard today, please consider supporting the Fish Out of Agua show on Radio Free Brooklyn with Patreon. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the Sponsor the Show button. Please. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and uh, we'll open next week with a song that pretty much sums up the world in 1968. But for now, see you next week.